Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In the third installment of our study of the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we see the Israelites' miraculous encounter with the Egyptians at and in the Red Sea as God himself fights for his people. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14 and join us on the next leg of our journey from bondage to freedom, which points us to Jesus Christ. The title for this morning's lesson is Showdown at the Sea, that is the Red Sea, in Exodus 14. And so you can go ahead and open your Bibles to that chapter. Um, For many of us, the parting of the Red Sea is one of the most well-known Bible stories, certainly from the Old Testament, right? It's one that when we're in Sunday school, when we're young, if you went to church when you were young like I did, you learned about the parting of the Red Sea. And uh, for most of us, we probably get most of our ideas uh, from this in visual form from Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments in 1956. Now, I didn't realize this, that he actually created a prior version of this film in 1923, it was a silent black and white film. And then he, he was so moved by the story and a lot of stories from scripture that he created a new version in 1956 with color starring, who was who Moses in the movie? Charlton Heston. Yeah, so for some who are younger, he was an actor. He's no longer with us, but he was well known for that role and many others. Uh, he may have even won, it probably won Academy Awards. I forgot to look that up. But what's interesting about Cecil B. DeMille is even in an interview, he loved setting the stories of the scriptures into dramatic film because he said they were so full of drama in and of themselves. They were just fascinating stories. And so that's one of the reasons he was excited to set the uh, story of Moses and the Exodus in the Ten Commandments, among other biblical stories that he uh, directed as a movie director. But it requires imagination in some respects to imagine what this scene would have been like. And there's a child uh, that I read about a number of years ago. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Johnny, because I feel like in every sermon illustration, the child has to be named Johnny. And Johnny did not want to go to Sunday school. And so his mother was frustrated and wanted him to be there. And she knew that the particular lesson that week was going to be on the parting of the Red Sea. And so she sent Johnny off to Sunday school. And afterwards, she asked Johnny, well, Johnny, what did the teacher tell you today in Sunday school? And he said, well, this is what she told us today, Mom. The Egyptians had the Israelites trapped against the sea. And his mother's thinking, okay, that sounds good so far. So Moses called in the engineers and threw a pontoon bridge across. And in the night and in the fog, he moved all his troops across to the other side. In the morning, the Egyptians saw what had happened and rolled across the bridge in their tanks. But just before they got to the other side, Moses called an airstrike in and and sunk the bridge with all the Egyptians on it. And her mouth is open wide. And she looks at her son and says, Johnny. Is that really what your Sunday school teacher told you happened? And he looked back at his mom and he said, No, but if I told you what she really told us, you'd never believe me. (laughs) 
And I, I share that story. It's an old illustration. I remember hearing it a number of years ago. I, I share that with us so that we can really envision the truly miraculous nature of what happened at this point in history that we are privileged enough because God has chosen to preserve this story in his scriptures. We are privileged enough to know what happened on that night and into that day at that location almost 3,500 years ago. It requires imagination it requires awe to see just how miraculous this event really was. Now, I say that as a preface because certain scholars, uh, even well-intending Christians, seek to explain this miracle in a way that has, it goes something like this. The Israelites, as they left Egypt, approached this um, almost like a slightly, a few feet deep pond of water full of reeds, and there was a, um, a wind that blew, so much so that a sandbar sort of emerged, and they walked across it, and uh, that's how they explain the miracle. They try to explain it using natural explanations. Guys, this was a supernatural work of God Almighty, and that is why we need to read it with a sense of awe and see the reality of what entails this account in the Scriptures. So, um, and I actually think Cecil B. DeMille probably captured the essence of this event pretty well if you've seen the film. I have not seen the entire Ten Commandments. I've seen portions of it, including this scene, and I feel like it's, it's pretty close to what the Scriptures put forth. So, just for context, we are in the year of 1446 B.C. For me, that's a real um, stake in my chronology of the Old Testament, it's sometimes it's hard to figure out, well, when did Abraham live, and when was Moses and David? And 1446 B.C., I believe, is a very reasonable date for this exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. Some scholars, again, well-intending people, will push it maybe into like the 13th century to push it later. I don't hold to that view. I don't think that that is uh, the correct view. But what we've seen as we've left Dale's teaching from Exodus 3 and 6 is that a lot has happened. And one of the griefs I have of moving us through this journey is not being able to stop at every stop along the way and take a deep dive. But what we have seen since Dale taught last week and where we'll be in Exodus 14 is that we have uh, the tw 10 plagues that happen with, between Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. And these plagues were promised by God to be brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians because of their uh, enslaving of God's people. And remember the first week we talked about the Abrahamic covenant where God promises to Abraham, who is the father of the Israelites and the nation of Israel, that who curses you, I will curse. The ten plagues of Egypt are the par excellence cursing of God upon the nation that cursed his people and force them into hard slave labor unjustly. Many of us are familiar with these plagues. What you may not know is that each of these plagues targeted something that was sacred to the Egyptians and something that was wrapped into their own cult and idolatry. So there was a god of the Nile River. There was a god of the sun. They had a god for just about everything. And God is picking, the true God is picking apart 
the religious system of the Egyptians through these plagues, showing his superiority over that of the Egyptians and their false gods. In a way that's interesting as you read this, Pharaoh's own sorcerers try to mimic these miraculous plagues by God, and they can only get so far before their failed magical powers even wane compared to the power of God Almighty. But we see these ten plagues, the Nile is turned to blood. We see frogs covering the land, and Pharaoh pleads, please uh, take them away, and sort of starts to promise, I'll let your people go now, Moses, you can leave, and then changes his mind. Um, So God brings more plagues like gnats and flies. The livestock in Egypt dies as a result of a, a supernatural disease that God sends. And just as an interesting note, in the region of Goshen, which is in the northern part near the, the mouth of the Nile River where the Israelites were, these plagues did not touch. They only touched and impacted the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian kingdom. There were boils, number six, hail, which completely wiped out crops. After the hail came locusts, which wiped out whatever else was left. And finally, darkness is a foreshadowing of the tenth and final plague in Exodus chapter 12, which was the killing of the firstborn of each member of the Egyptian households, including Pharaoh himself. Now, this was the only plague that God said, he protected the Israelites from all the others. But he said, this plague is going to require faith and action on the part of my people. And he required that they slaughter a lamb and then take a hyssop branch, which is like a sort of a brush branch, and cover the lintel above the door and the posts on the side of the door on the outside of your house. And if you do this and take it by faith that this is sufficient and act in this way, then an angel of death that's coming to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians will pass over your house. That's why it's called the Passover. And will not affect your family and your firstborn will live. And this was such an important event in the life of God's people and their history that it's still celebrated today in the lives of Jewish people. Maybe some of you have been to a Passover Seder where uh, this meal that celebrates this great event of the Passover and the exodus from Egypt, because they go hand in hand. But this great Passover, again, became one of the defining moments of the Egyptians, as would the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, Both had demonstrated God's faithfulness and ultimate victory over the enemies of the Israelites. So uh, I'd like to suggest to you, as we get into this, uh, this narrative, um, a resource. It's a, it's a video documentary. A guy named Tim, Timothy Mahoney has put together, um, I think, very well done, well-researched work on trying to find out more about the dating of the Exodus as well as this Red Sea miracle. And he has created several documentaries that you can actually access We're going to provide this to you um, through a a resource called Right Now Media. Now, there are going to be a few ways that you can access this material, and they they really are great. It's called Patterns of Evidence. That's the series. Um, Right Now Media is the resource, and there are at least two ways you can get to this. Uh, One is if you go to wcchapel.org, 
and you go to Groups and Ministries, it's at the top of the page, and then at the bottom of that page is a Right Now Media button that you can click on, and it brings you to a, a, web, a web page where you enter your name and your email, and you create a login, and then you have access to thousands of excellent video uh, biblical resources that are available through this website called Right Now Media. Um, if you want a more immediate way, and if, if you have questions later, say, how do I get to that website? I can show you, or Dale South can show you. Uh, Dale has also brought these cards, which I'll give to Brian. And Brian, if you could just take one and pass them around. If you don't get one, we'll find a way uh, to get this information. But you can scan the QR code here on your phone. It will take you directly to that webpage where you can sign up for this resource. And I get, I get excited about resources like this because I'm, I'm very excited for ways to help equip God's people to study God's Word and to know Him more deeply. And I believe this Right Now Media resource can help you to do that. So again, if, if you don't get a card today or if you want to sign up, we can bring more cards next week and equip you in that way to sign up for Right Now Media completely free of charge to you. There is no cost. Um, so, as we get into the Scriptures, of course, we have a map and that's right, there's clapping for the maps for, uh, for those guys who are new, have not been to a men's breakfast before. We love maps. Maybe it's me, I love maps, but I, I think we all love a good map. Now, what's interesting about this map is that you see Egypt and you see Canaan. Egypt is the origination, Canaan is the ultimate destination. There is some debate about the exact path that the Israelites took and exactly even where the Red Sea crossing took place. Um, one option is to have this area, this first body of water that they cross there, and you can see towards the bottom of your screen in the middle is the, one of the traditional locations of Mount Sinai. There's a monastery there called St. Catherine's. They believe that it's close to the original Mount Sinai. Uh, I've recently been seeing some scholarship, including this resource on Right Now Media, that I, is pointing people to a different crossing over the Gulf of Aquaba, a little bit farther to the east, which would then put the original Mount Sinai on the other side of that. No one knows for sure. And it's interesting to look at some of the scuba diving research that's being done and different coral patterns in this body of water that could be ax axles and parts of chariots. Um, no one knows for sure. But we do know that this did take place. Um, one interesting uh, concept here is that the word for Red Sea, Yam Suf, uh, doesn't actually mean Red Sea. It, it's close to meaning Reed Sea or Sea of Reeds. The word Suf is the same word that's used when Moses' mother put him in the basket in the Nile River in Exodus chapter 2 amongst the reeds. And Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe amongst the reeds. Uh, but the word could also mean end, and so some have posited that it means the sea that is at the end of Egypt or even at the end of the promised land, the sea of the end. Again, regardless of where this took place, this event did happen. And as we look at Exodus chapter 14, we see two stages of the event. The first is preparing for battle, the first 20 verses, and then the second part is parting of the sea. So, let's look at uh, the beginning of this account and make some observations about it as we go along. 
Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 14. And again, this is a moment they've all been waiting for. (laughs) Freedom from their enslavement. Then the Lord said to Moses, which is an oft-repeated term throughout the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and then you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So now this, this is interesting. As, as one scholar has said, it's God's eccentric change of route, an eccentric change of route by Yahweh. They were actually a few days of into the wilderness already. Some scholars think maybe three days leaving Egypt, and God says, stop by this body of water and almost turn around. And um, my, my friend and colleague, Rich Sylvester, was preaching on this very same passage not too long ago, and he was commenting how on road trips, he doesn't like to stop at a rest area if it's more than 0.2 miles off the exit. Maybe, maybe some of you can relate to that. I know I can. It reminds me of a story uh, a number of years ago after, I think it was when uh, we had our daughter and then our, our first son was just a few months old. We, we took a road trip with my parents and my dad is back there. You were driving from, uh, from this area to Louisville, Kentucky. And needless to say, my parents, when they travel, just the two of them, are used to some uh, efficient travel, not many stops. And um, we had two little kids in the car. And my dad made the comment about, after about the third stop, <laughs> um, he said, yeah, I realize that uh, traveling with young children isn't, isn't the same as traveling just the two of you. Um, this would have been one of those unexpected stops that the Israelites would not have thought to make. And then for God to even say, almost turn around. And he had a purpose for it. And he wanted to display his glory. And he asked his people to trust him. So they stopped. And then what happened is that Pharaoh, who was back in Egypt still grieving the loss of his firstborn and the nation's firstborn children, they began to sort of observe somehow. Maybe they had spies trying to figure out what the Israelites were going to do. But it's more spiritually what happened in Pharaoh's heart that is the issue. Because God says, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. Then God writes, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So the nation stops and they wait. We see God's purpose in in commanding his people to stop is so that he would get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. That is the entire nation. And that all the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. That's always God's purpose, guys, in all of his activity is so that he will get glory and that nations will know he is the Lord. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, in the, mind, uh, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. In other words, we just lost a significant economic advantage here. This people that we had employed as our slaves is now gone. What have we done? Let's go after them. Again, keep in mind that this was a group of about 2 million people, as best we can discern. It was a large population that had just left Egypt, and now Pharaoh's heart is uh, 
resolutely changed. And look at the action he takes. He prepares for battle, a big battle. Verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots. The word chosen could also be translated young. It's strong, young chariots. These are the elite chariots of probably the greatest army in the world at the time. And if that was not enough, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them, Pharaoh was gearing up. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Hebrew word there for defiantly is with a high hand. Oftentimes in, in the rest of the Old Testament refers to a willful sin against God. Here they're going out defiantly because it's a confidence that they are being led by God out of the land of Egypt. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So what we find here is that they, because they're faster, they're more nimble, they're in chariots and horses, and notice how many times as we see this text that his horses, his chariots are all repeated. They catch up with the people. Now you can imagine the people of Israel and what they're thinking in this moment. They're first of all wondering, why have we been asked to stop? Where are we going to go? We have this big body of water right in front of us. We have these mountains behind us. And then they start to hear the sound of the chariots thundering in the distance. It's like a movie where uh, the heroes are trapped and they hear and see the earth quaking because the enemy is coming. It's a very dramatic moment. And their worst fears are realized as they can maybe begin to see over the horizon the dust clouds and recognize that Pharaoh's army is catching up with us. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people cried out to the Lord. That's good. That's step one. And then they said to Moses, this is not good, by the way. This is not step two. Don't, don't, don't do this. <laughs> they asked him three questions. Is it because we, there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Question two, what have you done to us by bringing, uh, in bringing us out of Egypt? Question three, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, which by the way, they didn't say that. When Moses said, we're getting out of here, they worshiped and they were excited. So they have been totally um, turned around emotionally, spiritually because of their fear. And then they say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Not really. Life was not good in Egypt, but their fears have overtaken them. A quotation from the Net New English uh, Translation Study Bible here writes, Their cry to the Lord was proper and necessary, but their words to Moses were a rebuke and disloyal, showing a lack of faith and understanding. Their arrogance failed them in the crisis because it was built on the arm of flesh, Moses would have to get used to this murmuring. <laughs> you will see more of it, by the way, um, throughout our time together. But here he takes it in stride and gives them the proper instructions. They had cried to the Lord, and now the Lord would deliver them. And imagine Moses and his leadership at this moment. He, he knows what God has commanded. He hears the people's complaining, and he's trying to stay faithful on the right track. I think some of us in ministry can relate to that. 
And so what we see is that Moses then turns with great confidence and gives some of the most beautiful words in this portion of Scripture that should give us confidence as well. As we read verses 13 and 14. And notice how many times the the verb see is visual. This is an important word in this text. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses was saying, God will will deliver you. You simply need to trust. Be silent and watch what he does. Again, the emphasis on that word, see. Moses continues on. The Lord says then to Moses in verse 15, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Interestingly, this is the same Hebrew word that's used in the book of Jonah, when the fish spits Jonah up onto dry ground. And the people would walk across this dry ground. It would be an amazing miracle. And God writes, and I will harden the heart of uh, the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then we read, I think I have uh, some pictures here of, of what this may have looked like, this dramatic event. Um, Uh, And then verse 19, and then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between them, the, uh, the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So we see this pillar of fire and cloud that God was using to lead the Israelites moves from guiding them to guarding them and comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites and supernaturally provides wind and darkness and the Egyptians can't get to the Israelites so that Moses can make this miracle happen, God making it happen through Moses in the parting of the sea. Which again, may have looked something like this. It's interesting to think of what this would have looked like from heaven's view as this great expanse opens. Let's read how God describes it here, starting in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind, reminding us even of God who created everything. In the beginning, there was a spirit, the same word for spirit or wind, hovered over the waters of the deep. And here we see God supernaturally working over the creation that he has made to redeem and deliver his people. This east wind, it blew all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is no shallow sea uh, pond, guys. This is a real body of water that is miraculously divided. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and the horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians into panic. 
clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Uh, So uh, what we find here is keeping in mind this is about 2 million people. The opening in the sea might have been about a half a mile wide so that they could all begin passing. It says through the morning watch, which would have been the hours between maybe 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So they've been waiting for a while, and it's dark, and they're not sure what's happening. And then Moses, God parts the sea, and they begin to cross through it in the wee hours of the night. Another quotation from the Net Bible, just to explain that this truly was a miracle. Uh, Please avoid the temptation to be an intellectual skeptic on this. These words, there is no way to, pun intended here, water down the text to fit natural explanations. The report clearly shows a miraculous work of God making a path through the sea, a path that had to be as wide as half a mile in order for many people and their animals to cross between about 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., which is the morning watch of the night. What we also find is that God is fighting for the Israelites, and the Egyptians finally get it. They finally understand. The reason why we haven't been able to get to them is it's God is supernaturally protecting them. The reason why our chariot wheels are getting clogged in the mud, but they're ahead on dry ground, is because God is supernaturally protecting them. God is fighting for them and against us. Let's get out of here. For them, unfortunately, it would be too late. Verse 26, The Lord said to Moses, Now stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. We may have clues here that this was happening simultaneously, where the Israelites were moving through the sea towards one end, the Egyptians were in the middle of it, and the waters uh, began to close in on them as the waters remained divided for the Israelites. Or maybe it was sequential, where they finally got to the other side and the waters came through. Regardless of those details, God made something incredible happen. And these beautiful summary verses... Uh, show us what God had accomplished. Thus the Lord saved Israel from uh, that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw, there's our, our word four times, the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What a title of honor for Moses to have as God's servant. And what a great act of deliverance that God carried out for his people. Because they finally had now left this place and the Egyptians. A quotation from William D. Ramey from The Great Escape. The Lord finished the Israelites' liberation when he destroyed the Egyptian army. The Israelites' slavery ended when they left Egypt. But they began to experience true freedom after they crossed the Red Sea. 
The ten plagues had broken Pharaoh's hold on the Israelites, but the Red Sea deliverance removed them from his reach forever. God redeemed Israel on the Passover night, but he liberated Israel from slavery finally at the Red Sea. Do you see the definitive act of deliverance that this was? And this would become an event in history that would be referenced throughout the Old Testament as God would be looked to as the God who delivered. And God's people throughout their history would say, remember back when you delivered our ancestors from Egypt in the Red Sea. So uh, as we think about this, uh, what application might we pull from this incredible account? Um, taking the words really from the text itself, fear not, just as Moses said to the Israelites. God fights for his people. Um, there's, a, there's a language here of a Yahweh war, as some scholars call it, where God fights battles for his people. And this is the beginning of several chapters, actually, in the, in the book of Exodus, where we see God beginning to fight battles more obviously for his people. Even the term Lord of hosts that some of us may be familiar with from the Bible and the Old Testament means it's Yahweh Sabaoth. It's uh, Lord of almost angelic armies, angelic host. It's a military image that shows God as the great warrior and the great leader of his people. Um, even thinking through how God is this great warrior, we fast forward Never, you, you never want to fast forward through the Bible, but if you flip quickly to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus himself is depicted as a great warrior upon a white horse who comes in final judgment upon God's creation and evil and sin to eventually set all things right. God fights for his people. We read this from the, the New English Study Bible. The Israelites use this account for a paradigm of the power of God. Namely, God is able to deliver his people from danger because he is the sovereign Lord of creation. His people must learn to trust him even in desperate situations. They must fear him and uh, not the situation. God can bring any threat to an end by bringing his power to bear in judgment on the wicked. The Israelites simply needed to be silent and fear not. And maybe you are engaged in a battle today that you are wondering, God, what should I do? And he's asking you to take deeper steps of surrender and trust and to fear not and to know that he is fighting for you as you rely and trust in him. This is not a passive thing, though. We are certainly asked to be faithful and active in what God calls us to do. But we learn from this account to fear not because God fights for his people. Secondly, we learn, stand firm. God will do what he says he will do. We see such a high degree of foreshadowing throughout this passage where God says, I will do this. This will happen. I will get glory over Pharaoh so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And this is, again, God's reason for doing everything he does so that he will receive glory and the nations will know who he is. And he, he promises that he will do what he promises to do, and he fulfills that promise, which we read this account, we should have confidence that God will be good and make good on the promises that he has given to us as those who follow his son, Jesus Christ. He is constantly at work in the world for his glory and our good, and for that reason we stand firm because God will do what he says he will do, even in the midst of our most difficult circumstances. 
The final point of application as we prepare to close is see God's salvation. That's that word see, which ends up happening and appearing five times in this text. Bible study note on the side. If you see a term repeated, it's there for a reason. The author wants you to take note. But seeing God's salvation reminds us that the crossing of the Red Sea points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, I was reminded of a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, which are an interesting and, and could be confusing text, unless we just take the simple stance, which I think is right, that it points, all of this points us to Jesus. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, identified with Moses through that experience. And all ate um, the same spiritual food. That's manna. That's, that's coming. And all drank from the same spiritual drink. That's, that's water that God would provide in the wilderness. For they drank from the spiritual rock. That followed them, and that rock was Christ. We see that this entire event points to Jesus Christ. The deliverance of the Israelites through the Red Sea points us to the deliverance that God provides through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. Even that when we read in verse 4, see the salvation that the Lord will work for you, that word salvation is Yesha or Yeshua, which is related to the Hebrew word and Hebrew name Yeshua, which is what Jesus' name is in Hebrew, God saves. So we even see connections in the language that point us to Jesus because ultimate deliverance comes through Jesus Christ. Just like us, we were up against an impossible enemy. We were up against an impossible task and an impossible path that only God could provide the way out. Because of our sin, we had no escape, but God provided it indeed. Death was imminent for the Israelites. It was imminent for us. And God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, divided not a Red Sea, but a temple veil, as we read from top to bottom in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51, where Jesus on the cross, we read, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Because in this moment, guys, God provided the only solution to our impossible dilemma of a Red Sea of our sin and an enemy pursuing us. Jesus opened the way by providing access to the Father that only He could do. A miracle was required in both instances for the Israelites and for us. And God's salvation has been worked. And what he asks is that we will see and look to him in the salvation that he has worked through us for Jesus Christ and embrace him as our savior and our source of trust. And the forgiveness of our sins comes through that in eternal life. To not see that and to reject that puts us in a position like the Egyptian army, which was condemned and judged and sinking and died in the Red Sea. God invites us to look to Him to see the salvation through Christ so that we might be given eternal purpose and join Him in His disciple-making mission to make His glory known so that the world may know that He is the Lord. That is why we continue to learn our theme for this season, that the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus. Jesus.
Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week. Thank you.